Welcome to Restart Radio. I'm Dave Pickering and I make podcasts. I spend most of my life online, but I've got no idea how to fix any of the devices that help me to spend my time there. At least that's how I was before I started making podcasts for the Restart Project. The Restart Project are a London-based charity and social enterprise whose mission is to spark reflection and change in our relationship with gadgets. It's so inspiring also for me, seeing uh, more senior, more expert uh, fixers here that are able to fix so many things, uh, and I'm still learning, and uh, they inspire me so much because all the people here, they are so very open to share their skills and, and teach other people, and it's, uh, I think it's it's really a good environment to be in, so I invite you to join in <laughs> next time. You drop the microphone and you come here right. with some appliances. Well, well if, I, if I drop the microphone, then maybe I'll have to fix it right (laughs) (laughs) this month the restart project is turning five years old restart has been inspired by a huge range of people from designers to makers to thinkers to the volunteers themselves and the people who come in to the restart parties to fix their gadgets And on a personal level, in the few years that I've been making this podcast, I've learned so many things and it's really changed my relationship with the things that I own and the things that I buy. But more than that, I've learned things about the world and about myself and about the other people who operate in the world. And I'm very, very grateful to the Restart Project for having me along for the ride. To celebrate the Restart Project's birthday, we've decided to take a look back at some of the highlights from the Restart Project podcast. Okay, I'm Ray and I'm here because my amp doesn't work. Is it, is it still not working? It's way? working now. Andrew fixed it and it's, it's perfect now. Wow. It wasn't turning on when I was at home. I bought it here and he yeah, spent a few minutes with it, looked over it and tested it, put some weird meters on it to see whether there's a current going through it and took it from there. I'm, I'm relieved because I was going to actually take it to get recycled the other day. So, you know, I'm glad I didn't take it down and actually heard about this today. And I came down and, you know, I'm really happy. I'm going to go home and hook up the amp and listen to some music. The first step in fixing our relationship with our electronics is recognising their value. In episode 12, I talked to Jennifer Gabris about the natural history of our gadgets. Natural history is a core concept that I use, drawing from the German philosopher uh, and literary critic Walter Benjamin. And he had this quite interesting notion of natural history, which was a way of looking at commodities, in his case, uh, the arcades of Paris in the 19th century, as fossils. So he was looking at things like combs and umbrellas and briefcases and seeing them as outdated and outmoded objects that were no longer desirable. And he was quite drawn to these objects because he thought they expressed a kind of sense of the materialities, the markets, the economic forces that had run through them, the fact that they were once desirable and no longer were, and that they began to seem to be natural forms, that they were fossils of sorts. And I thought this was quite a provocative concept for thinking about electronics, because it also allows us to look at all of our digital devices as something that in one way is making new natures um, and in another way as something that will inevitably be thrown away and decay and become a future fossil. So how might we study these electronics as fossils? 
digital technologies are material. They might seem to be immaterial. They might even seem to be more environmentally friendly than using a piece of paper. But actually, they do have environmental footprints. And it can be complex to draw together a story about what their environmental footprints are. But it's an important thing to begin to attend to, particularly as we have increasing numbers of uh, computational devices, not least of which through the Internet of Things, where even toasters and refrigerators are now becoming computational. Establishing longer and healthier relationships with our electronics means uncovering the complex ways that we relate to them. In episode nine, I talked to Jonathan Chapman, who had amazing ideas about and examples of how we can create gadgets that we feel more connected to for longer periods of time. You're listening to this now, and it's normal that you're listening to it and it works. But if the sound was to suddenly cut out, like right now, you would notice, you would suddenly become aware that actually you're listening to this probably on an electronic device and that maybe that device has just failed. Whereas until the sound had cut out, that device would have been fairly invisible to you, and you probably wouldn't have even thought about it, because it was quietly doing its job, not making a fuss, you know, just there in the background. And it's just funny how you know, our experience of everyday life is, is mediated through a, an absolutely complex array of electronic products that just quietly chugging away in the background, doing their jobs. And, and we don't tend to think about them very much. What's your name? John. So what have you brought into the restart party today? I brought in a couple of old vintage portable record players that I was given by a friend of mine. I've been looking for one for a while and uh, rather than buy one, he had these ones which he couldn't get to work. So I literally about an hour ago picked them up. So it's the first time I've seen them and I knew that this was happening. I saw it on my Facebook feed and came along to see whether these could be, could be fixed and brought back to life. So uh, that's what I'm here for. They're beautiful old record players. You rarely see a record player anyway now, but you don't see ones like this really at all. Not so much. I mean, there's a lot now because vinyl, of course, is on the up with the vinyl sales that are happening at the moment. And so there's a lot of kind of retro-looking ones, stylized. a lot of kind of modern brands are kind of realising that there's a desire for it. But actually, I wanted to get my hands on the real deal. So I have no idea. This one looks like it's German because all the instructions for volume are not in English. Lautstärker which I think must mean volume. And this one is a, is a bush, but I, other than that, I literally have no idea. I mean, the plug on this one isn't even British, so but that's the first time I've seen it. So we're going to see what happens. What makes you want to hold on to gadgets? I, I want to hold on to things that I feel like have more value because they do things in a way that they don't do them now. If they do them now, they don't, they don't do them in the same quality, if you like. But if I don't need a gadget anymore, I'll hand it on, I'll pass it on. But there is a bit of technology that actually, like these record players, they don't build them like this anymore. Uh, then I'll keep hold of it and want to keep them going one of our students laura bethan wood she designed this fantastic product that was a, a teacup some parts of the cup were glazed and some parts of the cup were not glazed what happened was that as you drink tea and coffee what originally looked like a white teacup gradually began to reveal this pattern a polka dot pattern within it you know, so the unglazed parts of the ceramic picked up the tannin in the coffee and it started to become this beautiful kind of illustration within the interior of the mug. And that's a fantastic example of emotionally durable design applied to a product, partly because you've got a product that's nice when it's new, but it gets better through use. But then on the other hand, the product's doing something, I'd say, a little bit, I don't know, political might be a bit overexcited, but it's doing something quite challenging, which is to say that ageing and staining and marks... These are great things and they're inevitable. You know, everything ages, no matter what you would like to believe, everything ages. But it's funny that 
the way we design products, particularly smart digital products, they're incredibly vulnerable, these things, to the process of ageing. And if you do have something like that that has a quality that you can't recreate or get from modern things, I guess that's both a, a practical and an emotional connection yeah. to that thing. Yeah, definitely. You want to see these things work and play as they were built for, and that's one of the reasons I've started listening to vinyl in the last couple of years, because you know, much as modern technology is upgraded to digital and iPods and everything else, actually what you hear and the sound you discover is, is different. I want the real players that would have played those vinyl back in the day. On the podcast, we like to feature the voices and stories of people who come into the restart parties to fix their broken technology. I brought today was a a Grundig battery-operated radio, which I bought in Berlin in 1956. And the guy that repaired it said it was beautifully made, better switches than we have on the equipment today he was really quite proud you know to be working on it probably you don't remember but it was a top name in televisions and radios it's equal to samsung today he said the guy that repaired it said it's a wonderful little radio the only thing that was wrong with it was that it was crackling it was working okay but it was crackling in the background and he's fixed on that, but he, he worked on it. It took him a long time. He just, I, can't, I can't work this out, he said. It's not in the radio, he said. It must be somewhere else. And it was, it was in the batteries. You've used that radio all of that time, all of those years? I use it every morning. It's been an absolute pleasure and a delight to come along such a nice, friendly centre have my radio fixed these objects these these possessions if you like they provide accurate reflections of who we are and who we believe we are who we like to think we are and who we want to be that's nothing new anyone who's interested in consumer theory will say yeah like that's so obvious but actually to a lot of people it's not really that obvious although if you're listening to this and that's the first time you've heard it it will probably make sense nevertheless because it's just something we all do. We surround ourselves with objects that mirror and project. So on one hand, the objects mirror back to us images and ideas around who we are. And provided those reflections are accurate and desirable and things that we want to feel about ourselves, then we'll keep them. They will be relevant. But as soon as those reflections actually stop being accurate or start to suggest things that we no longer feel so maybe we've moved on in our lives or maybe our ideals have shifted slightly whereas the product haven't then actually the product begins to appear somehow out of date or not quite as resonant as it once did so that's the sort of mirroring potential of product and then of course there's the projecting potential which is a similar thing but it's more outward it's more overt so it's okay so between me and my private material world i've got these ideals these goals but in terms of what i want these things to say to those around me often they're similar but usually there's a few different things going on in there as well about how we try and conceal and hide our insecurities behind a wall of material things and some people refer to that as materialistic value orientation or MVO, which is an abbreviation, but it's basically just a way of saying we use objects to cast us within desirable roles. 
and to establish a, a false sense of status within large complex groups of people. It's not just about the economics either. OK, that's a general framework and how cultures consume differently, but also it's about our individual attachments to objects and how we feel about them and how they enable our practices and how we live our lives with them. That's Lara Euston, a researcher in the politics of technology. Lara reminds us that technological design is not something that just happens. It's a social and political event. For example... In episode 18, we explored how our gadgets are gendered. I was looking for a gift for my nieces. So I've got four nieces and, um, and one uh, nephew. And I was really sad, actually, to go into the gift shops looking for, for gifts. And all the nice stuff about science, drones, robots, they were labelled for, for boys. They were all blue. It was appalling. And, and all the, 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 the gifts labelled for, for girls, they were like about um, kitchen things and, and baking and... and for me, it's boring, but I, I can see the, the, the appeal. But boys might like to do those things too. Exactly, yeah, exactly. And actually, my nephew, he's got kitchenware things and he likes to play with it as well. And then I think it's just wrong to be labelling things and making the choice instead of the kids. Here I was talking to Restart volunteer Halima. Our guest in that episode was Alexandra the image of a tool that you have when you're a kid and you're taught about history is a male chimpanzee with a piece of stone that's carved in a particular way. It's never a female chimpanzee who's trying to do something. And so we have continuously use this image of men and tools in a way that's highly unproductive, of course, but those tool companies, the Bosch's of the world, the Schneider's of the world, whoever, uh, then turn to their ad agencies who are mostly full of men who then will cater to themselves when they're developing the ads for those tools that then continue to just, it's this vicious circle of conversation. I get more insulted about the kitchen space than I do about the tool space because the kitchen space is a space where men are designing specifically for women. And I'm kind of like, well, I'm sorry, didn't you think maybe to involve some women in the design process of those spaces that you know are unfortunately mostly full of women. The kitchen's a very interesting space that has gone through many different changes. The model of the kitchen that we have where we have a counter and we have countertops and we have things that are kind of above us. Anybody who's shorter than 5'5", five five, which includes myself, means that I never put anything up on the top shelf because that's just never going to happen. I need a literally taller person in the house with me. Uh, which probably has led a, a lot of my boyfriend decisions is on the basis of their height more than anything else. And I think that there's a, there's a failing in the natural assumptions that ergonomically we will make because ergonomics was designed on the basis of men's measurements in the army in the 20s. You can have a wooden ladle or you can have a metal ladle or you can have a plastic one. Not 
what what other types of instruments could we be using in order for someone to collect a lot of liquid in one go because they want to pour something we haven't come back to the whole premise of what are we trying to do and what are we trying to enable and who are the people who are trying to be enabled in different ways and yeah. and I think that that looking at things that way would unlock a lot of creative potential that we simply have not tapped into we put together a panel of some of our restart volunteers Sophia Alexandra Tim and Dave pinking and shrinking I guess is the term that people say about what is done to gadgets for women I mean do people have thoughts on on pinking and shrinking I mean is, is that what women want they, they want something pink and small I think that's it's a bit of an oversimplification <laughs> of like of needs isn't it I think the term is a bit patronizing I understand the sentiment behind it pinking and shrinking I just think that society is sophisticated enough now to cater for the different needs out there I have a sewing machine at home that I've had for about five years now and it's so wonderfully plain in its design that doesn't have any sort of clues as to who it might be designed for except someone who 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 likes sort of nice simple to use design and I, I guess I found that impressive. That's, yeah, that's a good, a good, a positive example. Well, I find the term pinky and shrinking especially odd because pink is my favourite colour, <laughs> you know, which just yeah. kind of totally blows it out of the way. And also, yeah, I like small gadgets. I don't say I like tiny gadgets, but I do like things that are conveniently small. Yeah, you know, I don't like aggressively large phones and so on and so forth. So, yeah, I'm totally on the wrong side of that. I, and I, yeah, I've never heard, nobody's actually come up with, there ought to be a term like, I don't know, bluing and growing, presumably, or something, <laughs> you know. As, as Tim said, sewing machines, for instance, interestingly, if you look at most of them, are very gender neutral. I've never seen a pink sewing machine. It's by the fact that stereotypically sewing is, you know, conceived to be a female thing. But for some reason, maybe because of that, nobody's ever considered genderizing sewing machines. Another frustrating trend in product design is the fact that products seem to be getting less and less repairable. We covered this early on in episode two when I spoke with designer Barry Wadlove as well as with some restarters about product design. It's a natural progression that people will no longer be willing to be shut out of their products. Yes, we like things to be sleek, but we want to be able to keep those things. So how's, it, how's it going there? You were opening the it up. problem is we can't get it open. Uh, I've quite strong, really, but I can't shift it. And if I if I give it even more welly, it's basically going to damage either the, the screw head right. or, the, or the driver. So. Okay. Yeah, so you can't get in. I can't get in now. I mean, the exciting thing with Restart is, is doing that questioning around electronic goods that are increasingly closed, you know, and not meant to be physically opened up or thought about. You know, they're meant to provide a very smooth service to us, you know, and when that goes wrong, you, you get the next kind of closed, smooth device that allows you to do certain things. So out of all of the, t- the technologies in the world, you know, from like bicycles and garden hose up to smartphones, you know, Restart are really making us think about some quite hard to get into technologies and devices. And the fact that so many people are interested in that is just really impressive and really important. That was the voice of Adrian Smith, who I spoke to in episode three, where we looked at the roots of grassroots innovation. Many of the people who come to our restart parties are fed up with impersonal and ineffective repair experiences. Part of the frustration comes from the way that 
products are designed and manufactured. But another part of it is that we currently lack a thriving commercial repair sector. So in episode five, we looked at how repair economies can find ways to thrive again. you think there's anything missing from commercial repairs in general? There's no communication or education when fixing an issue or a problem, which is unlike most other areas, really. When you have a problem, when you go to the doctor, you kind of know and hear and, and get a bit of education what's going on and why you take the meds and what they do. But this sort of stuff, it doesn't happen. I don't know. I just feel that we're just sort of bunged into a room, given a number and then given a really expensive invoice or receipt for something that should cost a lot less and then just bunged out again. I feel that a lot of the big companies and organisations that have the, like Apple, making it too easy for them to break. Maybe they need to like make it so you, 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 if you just spill one little drink over it, it should be fine. Maybe we need to learn together how to fix our things instead of just getting somebody else to fix it. So that'd be quite good. Luckily, there are some businesses that are working to revive our ailing commercial repair sector. In one of my favourite episodes, in fact, a two-part episode, I went for a journey with Steve the Spin Doctor and his dog in his van as he travelled around Brixton on a mission to repair people's broken appliances. The jobs we're doing this morning are going into a house where they've already paid someone else to do a repair or do an installation. And they've called a big company, and that's the biggest no-no. You're not going to get any quality in work whatsoever. You call an independent out, they're going to do the job properly there and then because they cannot afford to go back twice for one call-out charge. The first job we're going to now, they've paid someone else to install a machine, and it's jumping around the kitchen. I haven't got a clue why yet, but, <laughs> yeah, we'll work out when we get there. Hi, uh, Hi. When you When it came out in the kitchen, what exactly was in it? Just like bedding. Do you have a couple of large towels I could use? Please? Yeah. <laughs> that's what you'd expect a midwife to say, not a, not oh, a, that's a washing machine people, repair a person. People say, oh, like, a bowl and two large towels. And like, oh my God, you're giving birth. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so Steve's taking the bottom panel away so you can have a look properly at the washing machine. Towels have arrived. Perfect, thank you. Uh, it was just weird though, because the load wasn't any more than has been in there before. and It, wasn't, it was the same cycle that's been used before. It needs to be adjusted up at the front. It's front heavy. It's hard to know who to trust in it if you're on the other side of this thing. Like, you're great, but as you kind of alluded to earlier on, sometimes the big companies you can't trust. Oh, no. But also there's some people who maybe have just started tinkering around and then they're st- sort of advertising themselves as a... That's right. As, as a mechanic, but they're not. Exactly, yeah. exactly. I try and make my customers feel as at ease with me in their house. I, I, I'm like a robot, my, my job is very repetitive. I have the same conversation about a washing machine pretty much in every house I go to. <laughs> but, you know, it can be intimidating for some people who have a tradesman walk into their house. And I'm trying to... I try to completely step away from the whole put the kettle on, love. You know, that kind of... Let me get on with my job. Right. You know, do you mind leaving me alone for a minute? I always actually get them involved in what I'm doing. So if I have to change a part, I'll say to them, this is the part that's broken. I'll show them the old one and then show them the new one. People aren't that aware that you can even get repairs done that are affordable for them. That's right. Most people, a lot of people, think, my washing machine stopped draining, I'll go and buy a new one. 
not realising that for £45 I can give it a service and repair it and it will go on for another five years. So when, when you go in there watching you, you're kind of a bit like a doctor. Like you're you're like looking at the mechanics of it and you're well, like... I'm a spin doctor, yeah, that's exactly, right. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> you, you've chosen your, your name yes. well. But you're also like a good doctor rather than a bad doctor because when you go into a doctor and they don't tell you what they're doing and yeah. you, you don't know what they're... You feel very disempowered and scared and you, ha- you, you need that doctor and you're kind of in a similar position but you're doing really good kind of patient care, yeah. I guess. Yeah. I try and interact with my customers. As soon as I walk into a kitchen, I, I know, because I've done it for so many years, I know exactly what to check and when to check it. So the first thing I did when I went into that house, she said it's noisy on spin. The first thing I did was put two heavy towels in, make them wet, and then spin the machine. Right. A lot of guys would have gone in and gone, nothing wrong with that, love. <laughs> give, give me my call-out charge and, and left. Right. You know, I, I, I want to make 100% sure... I'm not going to have to go back to that house. Right. Because it's a waste of everybody's time. Yeah, I mean, I was super impressed. And then also, like, I feel like I learned a little bit about washing machines just watching you work. You can see that you're very methodical about it. You take your time. You look at the different ways that it's being. And you can see you're going through a kind of pattern that you're used to. Yeah. Like you say, you're kind of like, you, you know your way around a washing machine very clearly. Yeah. Oh, well, yeah, I've been doing it since I was uh, 16. This time the towel is being used underneath the uh, washing machine and he's draining out some water into a, into the bowl underneath not just water something grey black sort of mucky looking sparking yeah that's the motor brushes that's why it's not been spinning it is draining perfectly but the brushes are on literally got the tiniest bit left these are your brushes oh wow they look and they're, they're virtually gone i'll get a new set of my van they're little things with springs they gradually wear down over okay. the years like i'm gonna return home today with a much better understanding of any washing machine than i've ever had before as janet from the Restart Project explained in episode one. For us, our project is just as much social as it is environmental in the sense that when we think of a, re- a thriving repair economy tomorrow, we're thinking of skills being shared, value being circulated within a local economy that's very resilient and not necessarily coordinated by some you know, gigantic sharing economy app that's based in San Francisco. or you know, People don't really want to talk about what will it look like tomorrow when there are fewer jobs and, and when resources are scarcer. You know, how do we reorganize ourselves? And for us, that's actually the most interesting question. Community repair events and the commercial repair sector are two sides of the same coin. In episode five, we spoke to designer and writer John Thackeray about how we can transition to a repair-based economy that has human interactions at its centre. Because one of the things I'm pretty uh, fanatic about in this whole making and repairing world is that it's more to do with personal connections than putting vast amounts of information online in the form of, you know, textbooks or even videos. That If you can find a person to help you directly, it's so much more effective and more fun than, you know, reading pre-recorded stuff you begin to get a much better quality of life, as well as a cheaper one, which maybe you have no choice about, from socially organizing a relationship with your material possessions, working with people and having fun doing it, 
is an added bonus. So I don't want it to sound sentimental. It's a practical need, but it's also something which has a, a real quality to it. These ideas are ideas that have come up many times in the Restart Project podcast and in the radio show that Janet and Ugo host every week on Resonance FM. For example, here's Tim Hunkin in episode 21. I think in quite a lot of these things I see about mending things, I'm not sure people emphasise enough the sort of satisfaction and sense of ownership that you get from taking something to bits and mending even the simplest, even finding a fuse inside that's gone. It's sort of then it's your thing and it's uh, your telly rather than just the telly you bought from wherever. And I think that sort of sense of pride and ownership, people underestimate how important that is. Repair means different things to different people. For some, it's the joy of intellectual challenge. For others, it's about lingering emotional attachment to a cherished object. Some people repair for environmental reasons, and some repair because they want to save a bit of cash. All of these reasons are valid, and all of those reasons are connected to each other in many different ways. It's the complexity and diversity in the world of electronic repair and design that makes it such an exciting field. So happy birthday to the Restart Project. And here's to many more years of delving into these issues and exploring and bringing people together and linking people up and changing the way that we think about these issues. I'm looking forward to seeing what the Restart Project is going to do next. Restart Radio is both a podcast and a weekly show that goes out at 1.30 on Tuesdays on Resonance 104.4 FM, repeated on Thursdays at 11.30 a.m. As with all episodes of Restart Radio, we'll include links with background information to all of the issues and stories discussed over at therestartproject.org. The music that you've heard in today's episode was made with lasers and repurposed electronics and is a collaboration between Opto Noise and Cassini Sound. And big thanks to our intern, Lauren, who is a big step herself in helping to make the Restart Project podcast a much more sustainable process. Today's Restart Party is over, so it's time to pack up the equipment and say goodbye to each other. Goodbye, everybody.